One day you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative. Where truth lives. And welcome back. Michael McKay is joining us from Ottawa. How are you, Michael? It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Yes, it has. Good to see you. We have some news out involving Russia today. So before we get to the actual big geopolitical issues around Putin and maybe Xi, let's talk a little bit about the news because there was some interesting news about Oleg Deripaska. Eric, do you want to fill us in on what happened? Southern District of New York unsealed charges against Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska in a national inquirer level uh, mix of sanctions evasion and scandal where he tried to in evading sanctions and having people buy him clothing I, apparently i think he has some favorite american eagle t-shirts extra large he wanted 10 pack and he wanted some iphones and he also wanted his girlfriend to give birth to his first child on american soil so I'm reading down the indictment. We get to anchor baby number one. And then I flip a couple pages down and I had to update the tweets because not one, count them, two Russian oligarch anchor babies. <laughs> now, now the, he, this is not uh, his first baby. I don't think it's incorrect to say it's his first baby because I believe I was, he's I had other babies was... with other mothers. He's quite a big yeah. prolific dad, as it were. He likes to have children. He has a lot of money and a lot of options. Yeah. yeah. So because I care about these things a lot and because I had to do the research, I try to figure out who she is. This is her next to him and next to Lavrov. It turns out there's the same escort as she's referred to in this particular photo here, but maybe she's not an escort. She's just the, his girlfriend. I'll get you her name and, uh, and share it. Katarina Voranina. Yes. Well, okay, yes. Yeah, Ekaterina here is also in a... AKA Ekaterina Lobanova. Okay, so we were trying to look her up. We got to a decathlete who was pretty fierce looking, but didn't look like oligarch arm candy. And then we found another very sweet looking PhD in poli sci, but who looked very middle class. Well, so I found her. This is her under the escort arrow. And there's the oligarch, Deripaska, Oleg Deripaska to her left. Now to her right is Sergei Lavrov, her boss sometimes at the foreign ministry there. And also okay. his former mistress, because this is where I found the photo, is that uh, she was previously involved in a scandal involving he. And, and that's his other wife, mistress. Who's? Lavrov's. It's next oh, to, Lavrov's. Yeah, so there's okay. Oleg Deripaska to the, the very right of the picture, then his girlfriend that he wants to have an American baby with, and to the right of her is the foreign secretary of, foreign minister of Russia, and to the right of him is his first mistress slash wife. I don't think they're married. Lavrov's mistress? So, 
Anyhow, I mean, what does that mean? He's been, his indictment's been sealed. It means he's been indicted, right? For trying to do these he terrible and, things. And the yeah. two others were, I believe two, maybe three others were indicted for violating the Emergency Economic Powers Act sanctions. If we say that you're a specially designated individual, or the terminology is, you're on the bad guy list, then you can't come here, you can't do any business with that person. And so he had Russians in the United States helping him buy iPhones, buy American Eagle t-shirts, and try to have a child on U.S. soil so a member of his family could have U.S. citizenship. Did, in fact, have a child had in U.S. soil. He, that child is now a U.S. citizen. Child um, one is a U.S. citizen, yeah. and I think they intercepted this when they were trying to put baby number two down but here. Deripaska is actually a really big figure in all of this. I mean, the fact that he's actually hanging out with Lavrov is an indicator of how close he is to the inner circle of Vladimir Putin and how during the entire Trump-Russia scandal, call it what you will, and the first initial attack on Ukraine, he was the guy directing a lot of this information. He was the, the central to this whole thing. In fact, I believe was one of the people who hired Limnik to do what he was doing for them with Manafort. So this is, sure. Deripaska is a key figure here. The fact that he's been indicted and under these sanctions is key because he's escaped sanctions before because of Mitch McConnell's willingness to have a plant be built in his state. So this is a big deal that he's being indicted. Two more things, and I'm yeah. surprised you didn't lead with this. You already had a quote from Mitch McConnell, who's of Kentucky, mm-hmm. and Deripaska, after his sanctions, was still investing in metal plants in Kentucky. Yeah, he actually so, got the original sanctions were lifted because he got the plants in Kentucky. That's what Mitch got as a gift. I don't know if that plant ever got to be a reality. But let's get the other bit of news that came out, and then we'll talk more about Putin and company. Eric, the news came out of a espionage scandal involving Johns Hopkins University and the hospital there. We got two back-to-back. This was a huge day of DOJ going criminal on Russian espionage activities, because I'm going to count Deripaska's sanctions busting as him trying to plant future agents here, him still operating in the United States. But the next two stories, there was one of two doctors, a major in the United States Army who was posted as a physician at Fort Bragg, which is the head of U.S. Army Strategic or Special Operations Command and the 18th Airborne. And this doctor and Russian spouse, also a physician in the state of Maryland, they were conspiring with with who they assumed to be an agent of the Russian government working at the embassy, and they were transferring sensitive, protected health information on military members mm-hmm. and their family to the Russians. And I believe this physician had knowledge of how the United States was training the Ukrainian army on how to do battlefield hospitals. So this is very tactical kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And looking at the dates of the events in the indictments there, it's like from five weeks ago. So this is like, obviously, our radar is on super sensitive for people that are messing around in the espionage space. And the the story in Denver is real quick and less important in some ways. It's still going to be a lifetime jail sentence for this cat. But the guy who worked at the National Security Agency for a whopping one month before taking a leave of absence and then... Somebody approached him, hey, would you like to sell us any, do you have anything you'd like us to know? We come to understand that you have Russian heritage. And he's like, yeah, I do. And yes, I'd love to sell you some things. And in both cases, both of these folks, both of these groups here were talking to undercover agents working for the United States. 
the cat in Denver was going to meet the agent yesterday and they slapped an indictment on him that was unsealed this morning. So that is how sensitive the U.S. counterintelligence apparatus is right now. And by the way, counterintelligence is mostly watch, wait, see what they want, not slap charges on people, deport people, put them in jail. That's not the soul of counterintelligence. And there's relatively few espionage cases. And so for if you watch this space to have three cases like this in a single day mm. is, is off the chain and it should tell Putin and his people it's over, pal. <laughs> well, it certainly is not encouraging anyone to do any espionage. I mean, if you think you're going to get away with it, it's not a good time. Michael, you've been waiting so patiently. Let's bring you in here. And there is a lot of very serious things going on here. In addition to these espionage cases in Russia, there's an attempt to draft 300,000, maybe as many as a million people into the war on Ukraine. And this is not appearing to be that successful, but they are, of course, successfully in drafting quite a few. And so there's a lot of people who are going to be pushed into the war zone there, into the battlefront. And these are people who are going to have very poor equipment. By all accounts, some of this equipment is rusted. They've been asked to bring equipment from home. They're not well trained. We're looking at a potential bloodbath in eastern Ukraine. Do you want to talk a little bit about how it's being perceived in Ukraine and the impact that this might have on the war so far? Yeah. Well, I want to draw a distinction between how we perceive it and how it is perceived in Ukraine and also by Russians themselves. When we hear a term like partial mobilization of reservists, which is how this was first announced, we think of something very normal and something we're familiar with, at least historically, right, mm. about what that would mean. But in fact, it's nothing of the kind. And in fact, we really shouldn't look at it as a military thing. This is more akin to a press gang and is really a political measure with a large element of ethnic cleansing. The purpose is to get large numbers of people from colonized regions of Russia, colonized in the 18th and 19th century, into the um. army to get them out of the regions and to do two things at the same time. First of all, get them away from a place where they could be disruptive to central power in Moscow, and then to a place where they are also very likely to be killed, and if not killed, become prisoners and become a burden on Ukraine. But in any event, not a problem for Putin. So if we think about it in military terms, we say, this is crazy. Old men who are unwell and maybe with no military training and then given antiquated equipment, and there's a lot of videos about this. And that's all true, but it looks insane if we think about it as a military measure and as something that is saying, oh, how is our Russian offensive going to succeed as because of this? Well, they're not. And this is really you're saying we, we look at it in an old-fashioned sense of quantity equals quality, which is certainly not at all true in modern circumstances, not in the slightest. It might have been true up until the First World War, but we know that's not true anymore. So you're alleging so, that this is an ethnic cleansing, an attempt to cleanse Russia of its ethnic minorities. In fact, even more than that, push these ethnic minorities into Eastern Europe where they will have to be settled. I mean, let's assume all these the Ukrainians aren't interested in participating in the mass slaughter of all these Russians. They're going to be confronted with that choice of either you kill these ethnic minorities or you capture them. Where do you put them? I mean, where do you put these million people that show up from the ethnic minorities in Russia who are pouring over into Eastern Europe and potentially Poland? And, and other the point countries? is that it's disruptive, it's chaotic. Mm -hmm. There's no plan here. There's no master plan at all. It's just that it is certain 
to lead to chaos, disruption, mass casualties, and so on. And that actually is the point. Now, there's also the flip side of that. There is actually a real brain drain happening because a lot of the very more able to be mobile and economically equipped people are finding their way out of Russia because they don't want to be called up. And so you're seeing these satellite images. These are from two different borders on either side. One is from Georgia, one's from Mongolia. And you can see the backup of people and the car jams of people trying to get out of Russia. It's believed that there are more people trying to leave Russia right now than were originally part of the invading force into Ukraine. So you've got a remarkably big number of people who are going to be affecting the economy in a much bigger way because these are not the same people that are just being called up and might be thrown in there as cannon fodder. These are Russians who are seeking to leave the country and not return. And it's expected that they will cause economic chaos in Russia by the winter because they are so important to the economy. Yes, but I think we should also not underestimate the disruptive effect on the countries they're going to. Mm -hmm. The Ukrainian ambassador made a speech today, and he made a point that Ukrainians are talking about extensively, that these Russians are not actually anti-war Russians. Mm. What they are is, to a large extent, a Trojan horse. They remain mm. sympathetic to the imperialist goals of the Russian state. They remain hostile to the very mm. idea of the existence of Ukraine. They simply don't want to be the ones who get killed doing it. And that is how we should see them. So the language them being somehow refugees is really a disservice to true mm. refugees who are fleeing a conflict that has been thrust upon them. These are people who are seeking to evade the consequences of the war that the nation they constitute caused in the first mm. place. So, yes, and also mm. we think about the disruptive effect about the economy in Russia, but that's certainly not the way the Putin regime thinks. He's never had an economic consideration. Not with China paying all the bills. And we're familiar with in economic terms. It's, it's just, it's his turf as a crime lord. That's mm. all his view of what Russia is. So that's not really a factor for it. Your take there is not something I'd heard before, and it's really interesting. And the fact that we could be seeing sort of a population landmine that's waiting for Eastern Europe and for Europe. I can tell you that what I just briefly explained is the overwhelming view among Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm. Eric, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. And I hadn't thought of this as it seems like a suicidal push towards the West that doesn't have any real chance of succeeding militarily. But the Putin regime is weakened by the economic constraints put on by sanctions and perhaps all the different forces acting against the Putin regime. And Russia is a very ethnically diverse place and they have lots of potential breakaway regions. And if, you know, they get weak in Moscow, those regions who might be also given some impetus by outside intelligence services, maybe some of them are, some of them NATO and whatnot, some of them might be Chinese, might want to break the country up or sow discord, getting out men of a certain age and specific people definitely, and sending them into this other part of the world would help perhaps give Putin a little more time. And then as far as resettling populations in different places where they are likely to cause future disturbances, that is a historic pattern there as well. So, and I hadn't thought of any of that and what's going on. So and don't forget, really you know, yeah. I know owns a lot of Siberia, it owns a lot of these parts of Russia. They also have a huge issue feeding their population. If there's less population in Eastern Russia, 
And so that might be another piece of that in terms of the ethnic cleansing piece you're talking about there, that it could play into China's need for more arable land and just more space, really. That's interesting, interesting take. And also, I think it's interesting, the photographs you showed of people entering Georgia, and I think you said Mongolia, I know mm. people are also going to Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. But what you didn't show was a photograph of the Russians going to Estonia. There's mm. a land border in Arva. And the reason is Estonia, along with Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and I believe the Czech Republic, have closed their borders to Russians, all mm. of them. Because mm. they're all aware of this Trojan horse aspect of these men fleeing mobilization who are not, in fact, war resistors at all. So the other thing is, this all seemed to happen right after the meeting with Xi and Putin, where Putin was like, we understand you've got some concerns and Xi didn't say a thing about Ukraine, which was weird because normally that kind of language is negotiated before. We're going to say, we understand you have some concerns and then you'll say what your concerns are. But Xi didn't say his concerns. And then he came back to Moscow. And the next thing you know, he's calling up a million people. It <laughs> feels like they are coordinating this dance. I and mean, clearly they're unified on this. We've seen enough photographs of them together showing us how unified they are. And it's clear that China that's really footing the bill for this war in Russia because they're backstopping all the losses that Putin is making. What's your take on Xi and how he is positioning himself in this battle and how he's perceived in Ukraine as well. How, what is China's role in Ukraine? Oh, gosh. Tough one. <laughs> yeah, I don't see it as a factor, really, mm -hmm. in what I see from Ukrainian sources and so on. So yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just invisible. What can I say? <laughs> it's very much in my eye these days because we're doing so much investigation into China's role in the attack on democracy. So I'm very familiar with what they're trying to achieve there. Eric, do you have any take on it? Well, look, it is a fairly invisible partnership. Most people don't think of China's role in Ukraine, and it's not very obvious. But you go dig in, and it's certainly in there. And I think guys like Ihor Kolomoisky, had plenty of deals with the Chinese. And that's part of what's been getting dug out. And it's one of the interesting parts of this war is that it's really breaking up the China-Russia partnership and the China-Ukraine partnership, certainly the mob elements in Ukraine. So I wonder if, you know, that meeting between Putin and Xi was, Xi said, we're pulling the plug on the cash here, guys. And so now we're getting towards this end game. And uh, that's where now Putin's going to send all these uh, different folks across the border. But uh, I doubt Putin's going to make it to Portugal in this big push. Tell me about Vladimir Zelensky and how he's reacting to all of this, Michael. I think the way he's reacting to it is being a voice for the Ukrainian people. The language in Ukraine is not about Putin. And it really hasn't been much about Putin for many, many years. It's about Russians and about what they're doing in Ukraine. And that's what his message is directed to. It's a message of hope for Ukrainians who are overwhelmingly convinced that they will win this war and liberate all of their territory. And it's a message directed at Russians. And it's a message that is that works at their weak spots, messages to soldiers, things that they know in their hearts are true. You will come to Ukraine, you will be abandoned by your officers, uh, you will be left with no resources, and if you're killed, your family will get no money. And therefore, your best option is to surrender, and there's very clear ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And then they emphasize what Russians are doing in Ukraine, which is committing genocide. 
And that's what his messaging is. And this galvanizes support amongst Ukrainians. And it also is a goad to Western supporters to be more forthcoming with weapons, which they have to be. And I would also say one other thing, and it's really important to his success. He leaves the generals alone. And that is a massive difference between him and Putin, who is micromanaging the Battle of Lehman, for example, and the battle in Kherson, which he's losing both Lehman more quickly than Kherson. The Russians um, are doing losing a lot, but there has been a huge toll as well on Ukrainians. I don't know what the current death toll on Ukrainians is, but there are lots of families that have been had to leave their homes. There's lots of families that no longer have dads or moms, and it's been hugely shattering to the social fabric over there. But the response is not hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, They've been very the strong. It is, it is the opposite of that. And the response of Russians increasingly is. Mm -hmm. They are now in a state of panic. And this is palpable if you look at Russian language social media. So it's the response to adversity. Mm -hmm. Ukrainians know they're in a righteous cause. They are conscious about the suffering. They honor their dead. But it doesn't shake their resolve to go forward no matter what, to victory. Whereas the resolve of Russians can and is being broken in the face of uh, their casualties. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, Eric, just the final note here that we're seeing Russia, the supposedly great nation with this great army, I mean, falling apart. There's no other way to describe it. This is certainly not the great Russia of old. That, uh, what do you mean? Yeah, great Russia of old. When they, they, these are the guys that used to send people out with no boots and would send unarmed people up front to take ammunition and leave the more veteran soldiers in the back. I mean, these, this is an army that puts its machine guns behind its soldiers mm -hmm. in case they flee. Just one, one quick antidote about why Russia is going to lose. The Russian word for mobilization, mobilizatsiya, has been adjusted by one letter among Russians to be mogilizatsiya, mogilizatsiya. Mogila, one letter, mobila, mogila, means yeah. grave, the oh. tomb. So you're being called up in mobilization is now mogilization, it is your funeral. That is a good note. And it is Russians who are saying this, and then Ukrainians just amplify it right back to them. They're masters of propaganda because they do understand the Russian people. On that note, let's leave it for tonight. It's time for us to go. Thank you very much, Michael McKay, for being here. It's been good to see you again. And hopefully we'll have you on again in the near future as things develop in Russia and Ukraine. And thank you, Eric. Have a great night, everybody. Every minute of Narratives reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative, where truth lives.